0: And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquart.
1: Welcome to the Sunday edition of Talk Law Radio. Today, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the details of a court case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin. It's a United States Supreme Court case that determined... A New York law was unconstitutional because it infringed on the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. But the reason that the Bruin case is so important is because the analysis from Bruin will be used to determine whether the ATF can change the definition of terms to restrict the purchase of certain firearms. The episode. This episode follows a previous show where I discussed the legal challenges regarding those changes that the ATF made to definitions that restrict the purchase of certain firearms. So search for the August 12th episode to hear the rest of the story. Tune in to KLUP 930 AM The Answer Radio to discover your legal issue blind spots or search www.talklawradio.com. Also, watch Facebook Live and YouTube. Follow and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are posted. Now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. In order to understand the Bruin case, let's begin talking about the New York law that was actually challenged. It was a crime in New York to possess any firearm without a license, whether inside or outside the home, punishable by up to four years in prison or a $5,000 fine for a felony offense, and one year in prison or a $1,000 fine for a misdemeanor. Meanwhile, possessing a loaded firearm outside one's home or place of business without a license is a felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison. A license applicant who wants to possess a firearm at home or in his place of business must convince a licensing officer, usually a judge, or law enforcement officer, that, among other things, he is of good moral character, has no history of crime or mental illness, and that no good cause exists for the denial of the license. If he wants to carry a firearm outside his home or place of business for self-defense, applicant must obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver. To secure that license, the applicant must prove that proper cause exists to issue it. If an applicant cannot make that showing, he can receive only a restricted license for public carry, which allows him to carry a firearm for a limited purpose, such as for hunting, target shooting, or employment. No New York statute defined what proper cause was. Hence the problem. New York courts, however, held that an applicant showed proper cause only if he could demonstrate a special need for self protection distinguishable from that of the general community. The special need standard was demanding. For example, living or working in an area noted for criminal activity wasn't sufficient. Rather, the courts required evidence of particular threats, attacks, or other extraordinary danger to personal safety. And further, when a licensing officer denied an application, judicial review was limited. New York courts deferred to an officer's application of the proper cause standard unless it was arbitrary and capricious. In other words, the decision must be upheld if the record shows a rational basis for it. So that rule left applicants with little recourse if their local licensing officer denied the permit. There are a whole lot more states that had what they called a shall issue permit, 43 states to be exact, jurisdictions where authorities must issue a concealed carry license whenever applicants satisfied certain threshold requirements without granting licensing officials discretion to deny licenses based on a perceived lack of need or suitability. There were six states and the District of Columbia that called their licensing laws may issue under which authorities had discretion to deny concealed carry licenses even when the applicant satisfied the statutory criteria, usually because the applicant had not demonstrated cause or suitability for the relevant license. New York, California, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, and New Jersey had similar proper cause standards. So that's the background. That's the law that was complained about in this Supreme Court case. And this case is important because uh, the justices of the Supreme Court established a standard by which all other challenges to the Second Amendment or challenges to law that affect uh, the right to keep and bear arms would be judged. Now let's talk about the specific plaintiffs of the case and what they went through to get here. The petitioners were Brandon Cook and Robert Nash, who were law abiding adult citizens in New York. Cook lived in Troy while Nash lived in Averill Park. And there was a third petitioner, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated which was a public interest group organized to defend the Second Amendment rights of New Yorkers. Both Cook and Nash were members. In 2014, Nash applied for an unrestricted license to carry a handgun in public. Nash did not claim any unique danger to his personal safety. He simply wanted to carry a handgun for self-defense. In early 2015, the state denied Nash's application for an unrestricted license, but granted him a restricted license for hunting and target shooting only. In 2016, Nash asked a licensing officer to remove the restrictions, citing a string of recent robberies in his neighborhood. After an informal hearing, the licensing officer denied the request. The officer reiterated that Nash's existing license permit permitted him to carry concealed for purposes of off-road, backcountry, outdoor activities similar to hunting, such as fishing, hiking, and camping. At the same time, the officer emphasized that the restrictions were intended to prohibit him from carrying concealed in any location typically open to and frequented by the general public. Between 2008 and 2017, Cook was in the same position as Nash. He faced no special dangers, just wanted a handgun for general self-defense, and had only a restricted license permitting him to carry a handgun outside the home for hunting and target shooting. In late 2017, Cook applied to a licensing officer to remove the restrictions on his license, citing his extensive experience in safely handling firearms. Like Nash's application, Cook's was denied, except that the officer permitted Cook to carry to and from work. The respondents are the superintendent of the New York State Police who oversees the enforcement of the state's licensing laws and a New York Supreme Court justice who oversaw the processing and licensing applications in that county. The petitioners sued for declaratory and injunctive relief, declaratory judgment being declaring that the law was unconstitutional, injunctive relief being asking the court to stop the state from enforcing a law that's unconstitutional, alleging that their Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights were violated by denying their unrestricted license applications on the basis that they had failed to show proper cause or had failed to demonstrate a unique need for self-defense. The district court dismissed the complaint and the Court of Appeals affirmed it, meaning that the Court of Appeals agreed with the district court. And so they brought this case to the United States Supreme Court, and the issue was, does New York's law requiring that applicants for unrestricted concealed carry licenses demonstrated Requiring that they demonstrate a special need for self-defense violates the Second Amendment. Well, here are some of what the Supreme Court decided. Number one, the Supreme Court rejected what was being done by lots of other federal courts of appeal around the U.S., which was using a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combined History with means and scrutiny. Another Supreme Court case known as the Heller case held that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. In this case, meaning the Second Amendment. If the plain text of the Second Amendment covers the individual's conduct, carrying a pistol inside the home or outside the home. That's, that's presumptively protected conduct. The court further said to justify regulation of a constitutional right, the government may not simply make statements that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation, the United States, historical tradition on of firearms regulation. Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this United States national historical tradition may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command, which is a pretty strong protection. We're still talking about the framework of analyzing whether a law is unconstitutional because it violates the Second Amendment. Step one of the framework demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text. So let's just read it. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That was the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, which was ratified in the year 1791. Okay, let's go back to the court's opinion. The court said that the, the previous decisions, Heller, another opinion uh, known as McDonald do not support applying means and scrutiny. Instead, the government must affirmatively prove that its firearms regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. If you're interested, look up this Bruin case, and you can read about Uh, the argument of both parties of what the historical tradition has been in the United States. Okay, here's uh, the Supreme Court's statement about New York's proper cause requirement. They said that it addressed the same problems addressed in Heller, handgun violence primarily in urban areas. Following the course charted by Hiller, we will consider whether historical precedent from before, during, and even after the founding evinces a comparable tradition of regulation. So that's saying were handguns regulated around the year 1791 because of that reason of uh, handgun violence. It is undisputed that petitioners Coke. And Nash, two ordinary law-abiding adult citizens, are part of the people whom the Second Amendment protects. Let's go back to the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So what the court was saying is Cook and Nash are people as mentioned in the Second Amendment. Neither party disputed that handguns were weapons in common use today for self-defense. They're they're not unusual or dangerous, any more dangerous than any other gun anyway. I know that people are going to argue about that, whether they're dangerous or not, um, but you just have to read the opinion to become more familiar with how that, that term is used in this context. So after you find after you look at the second amendment and find out are there words that when compared to the the regulation being challenged affect the constitution then you then you ask uh, you move on to the next step nothing in the okay here we go We therefore turn to whether the plain text of the Second Amendment protects Cook and Nash's proposed course of conduct, carrying handguns publicly for self-defense. That's one of the rights mentioned in the Second Amendment. Let's go back to it. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So that's what uh, Cook and Nash were wanting to do, was keep and bear arms. The textual elements of the Second Amendment's operative clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed, guarantee the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. The Heller case further confirmed that the right to bear arms refers to the right to wear, bear or carry upon the person or in the clothing or in a pocket for the purpose of being armed and ready for offensive or defensive action in a case of conflict with another person. The definition bear naturally encompasses public carry. Most gun owners do not wear a holstered pistol at their hip in their bedroom or while sitting at the dinner table. Although individuals often keep firearms in their home at the ready for self-defense, most do not bear, that is, carry them in the home beyond moments of actual confrontation. To confine the right to bear arms to the home would nullify half of the Second Amendment's operative protections. Moreover, confining the right to bear arms to the home would make little sense given that self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right itself. After all, the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation, and confrontation can surely take place outside the home. The need for armed self-defense is perhaps most acute in the home, But it's not insignificant elsewhere. Many Americans face hazards greater outside the home than in it. The text of the Second Amendment reflects that reality. The Second Amendment's plain text thus presumptively guarantees the petitioners Cook and Nash a right to bear arms in public for self-defense. So then the burden fell on the respondents to show that New York's proper cause requirement was consistent with consistent with the United States national historical tradition of firearm regulation and they they didn't find that I'll I'll just cut to the chase there if if you want to read all about the history of the regulation of firearms they do go into greater detail in this case so let's recap some of the analysis in those previous cases, Helen and Heller and MacDonald, the court held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendment protected an individual's right to keep and bear arms for self-defense, the normal and ordinary meaning of the Second Amendment's language. The operative clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, guarantees the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. Most rights, like this one, the right secured by the Second Amendment, is not unlimited. And so they did mention how you would know what the limit was. The court found it fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons so that's opposed to the second amendment protection for the possession and use of weapons that are in common use at the time so the the court wanted to reiterate that their test was does the regulation touch the plain meaning and text of the second amendment and is the regulation similar to something that's uh, already been used in the past in the history? And the court said that they didn't like the interest-balancing inquiry because that was just uh, reliant on the discretion of judges, and uh, they said that a constitutional guarantee subject to future judges' assessments of its usefulness is no constitutional guarantee at all. They wanted it to be more objective. So I wanted to make clear that the reason that this is an important case is not because the court found that New York's law was unconstitutional, although that, that was important. But the it's most important because of the court's announcement of a clear standard for determining the constitutional constitutionality of gun laws in the future as well because if you're watching the news you've probably noticed that uh, there is some mention of challenges against the ATF's uh, change in the rules and regulations that define a pistol with a a brace attached to it to be not a pistol with a brace but to be a short-barreled rifle. There's also challenges to another law that redefines what a receiver and frame of a pistol and, and a firearm is Uh, specifically targeting ghost guns, so to speak, those those guns that can have a receiver in a frame that's made with a a 3D printer. And so that's being challenged as well. And they're all going to face this same standard that has been announced by the court, which is does the regulation touch and affect the plain meaning and text of the Second Amendment? Yes, they probably do. And are these regulations similar to regulations in uh, the United States National Historical Regulations? Probably not. So if I had to predict, I would say that these changes in the law are unconstitutional, but we'll have to wait and see that, that those... Come to the courts, and they have been through some of the courts, and I spoke about those opinions on Saturday, August twelfth. So, if you're interested in hearing more about that, you can go to uh, podcasts everywhere. You can go to www.talklawradio.com and search for previous uh, streaming episodes. You can go to Facebook and search for the, the former Facebook Live videos there, you can search YouTube and find uh, previous video shows uh, there as well. And I want you to tell your friends that you like this show and uh, ask them to go to YouTube and subscribe and click the bell so that they can be, receive an announcement every time a new video is posted. That way you can stay informed about what the law is, because it all started with one rule. God said, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Then we had the Ten Commandments, and now we have federal, state, and municipal lawmakers that won't stop making new laws, laws that might affect you. So tune in to Talk Law Radio. I'll talk to you later.